And we're live. Hi, John. Hey, Marcy. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> um, I think it's a Tuesday still. Yeah, it is, right? It's just a per- like a perpetual Tuesday. But it's so, like 2020 still, right? It is still the year of our Lord 2020. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it's nice to be back. How are you doing? You know, I'm just, you know, living here, living my best life via Zoom and all things virtual. Living the dream? I heard a rumor, John. I heard a rumor. What's this rumor? I heard a rumor that you ran and won for town council of the city of West Hollywood. Uh, Yeah, so your rumor is substantiated. I was, um, like with all good people that were elected uh, this past November, I was elected as a city council member for the city of West Hollywood. Well, then I feel like the only thing I can do is say, your majesty, this is an honor. (laughs) What am I supposed to call you? Do you, do you have a fancy name in front? Is it like my, my lady? What is it? Well, well, Councilman John Erickson. Is this a public or private thing of what you would call me? (laughs) Well, we're really proud of you um, at the Engaged Gaze um, as as your co-pop culture theologian, very proud of you. Uh, John is proof, y'all, that you just have to run. You have to put in the work and run. And now now the work begins. But so exciting, John. So Thanks. why don't we tell people who we are? Since I think we might have some new people joining in. Uh, because who doesn't want to talk about the crown? I mean, seriously. I mean, we've thought about a lot of things, but welcome everyone. Welcome to Pop Culture Theologians, where you have two queens, uh, speaking about queens, but Marcy and myself, um, two recovering academics that find uh, pop culture and theology and the mixture between academia and activism to be super fascinating. And so we take shows um, that have taken over the pop culture sphere and break them down episode by episode um, for things that we find, themes, uh, topics, uh, connections to current society and the stuff that's going on. Um, You can go back and see our, our entire back catalog. I think this is season seven, Marcy, if I'm not mistaken. That's crazy. So we've we've covered everything from The Purge to Harry Potter, uh, Hunger Games, uh, Discovery of Witches. We kind of just popcorn what we choose. Um, and also, uh, we were much more dedicated. At we will never let a season slip until the pandemic hit. But like everyone, we're cutting ourselves some slack. We took a bit of a break just because we've been surviving. But... Um, man, there was nothing that was going to lift me out of like the proverbial 2020 nap than uh, wanting to talk. (laughs) I guess for me, like wanting to talk white supremacy and imperialism through the lens of the crown, misogyny. What else? There's, there is everything in this show. Super excited. There's a few things. Just super excited. So our host site is Engaged Gaze. Um, you can find our sister podcast there as well, The Bible Bitches. Um, and then, John, we're both pretty active on Twitter. Where can I find you on Twitter? So you can find me, West Hollywood Council Member Elect, on Twitter, um, at jerickson 85 But I still promise to share all sassy banter aside when I can. Um, so you can find me at jerickson 85 which is still my basic handle. But Marcy, where can we find you? <laughs> that almost felt like an unintended dig that you don't know about. Hey, everyone. So uh, you can find me... Uh, 
me, Marcy, the pop culture theologian at Magdalena on fire. Um, I, I had to, not I had to, but I created like a, a work Twitter this week because I felt like I should probably stop tweeting about Love Island and Harry Potter right next to my racial equity work. And it's just sucked because it's so much work. But um, but when it comes to movies, films, TV, uh, I am uh, tweeting at Magdalena on fire. So you can find me there and I'm pretty active. So Yes, you are. And you can also follow the Pop Theologians at Pop Theologians on uh, 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 Twitter and Facebook. We are there. And make sure you're following Engage Gaze um, at Engage Gaze on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. We do a lot of posting and some more writings. Um, I'm, if I can get my act together, we'll be um, trying to write uh, cover weekly the his dark materials, which is a show we've covered in the past, um, because it's incredible. But we've got a lot of stuff coming up, and it's really exciting to be back with y'all. It is, it is. So something we usually do right before we get into our show, John, is what do we break down? Um, so Marcy, if you could tell me what the f- happened this week, or maybe <laughs> year. Right. So usually, uh, usually we were podcasting once a week. Um, Let's see how this goes. But um, I think overall, the what the fuck happened since the last time we podcasted is Trump lost the election, John. Boom. Uh, in the slowest loss that has ever happened in the history of elections. I don't think he's even said he's lost yet. <laughs> no, he has actually not conceded, though there are signs of the people around him conceding, which led me to actually uh, want to, instead of going through like wacky news of the week, because what isn't crazy and like off right now, um, to just give our predictions of what will happen before uh, the the transition or if there will be a transition of power. What is your like 15 second uh, prediction for how this is all going to go down? Oh, I mean, I honestly don't even think he's going to go to the inauguration. Oh, well, I think that's a given. You know, I think I think clinical narcissists are not going to go and congratulate someone else. Yeah, I don't think he's going to go to the the inauguration. I hope for the sake of our country I'm wrong. I would love to see him <laughs> sit again. To see him do do one thing that his job required him to do. Yeah, I honestly think he's just going to leave, you know, but I do think that, you know, this is a really scary time. Um, These are dark times, Harry. There's your first Harry Potter. There's your first Harry Potter reference, everyone. Um, There's so many. There are so many, but I honestly think that it's it's really quite terrifying right now because this is where, I mean, he hasn't, he went in front of the media today for 63 seconds to talk about um, the stock market booming over 30,000 points. And it's like, well, that's because Biden's taking over and he has Janet Yellen as a treasury secretary. So let's be real. The stock market reacts in real time to a lot of certain things. And, uh, right. And the well, stock market is actually not a, a, like an economic um, marker for the average American. It's an economic marker for billionaires. So. So yeah. it's like not even like I I think it's so interesting that people watch the stock market in a way to say like how are we doing as a country? And it's like, no, no, no. That that is how is how is wealth doing in this country, not people. Um, but agreed, even even the bump today is a is a Biden bump. Um I'm gonna tell you that I actually don't think um 
So at first I thought that he would quit and then ask for pardons for his federal crimes for him and his children, or at least the, the one child he cares about. Um, Does he care the, about his children? I think he, I think he has like a really disgusting uh, relationship with his daughter. I don't think he cares about any of his other children. I think he honestly forgets that, that three even exist. Um, but as I've kind of watched it all play out, um, there are some serious crimes to be levied against him at a state level in New York. So um, a federal pardon doesn't really do much. Um, so I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I think there's a very good chance that he jumps on a plane and leaves. Uh, and that, like, I honestly think that is a possibility. Um, or uh, he's living in some type of delusional world um, where he could negotiate a peaceful transfer of power with Democrats. Um, so this, I think, is actually probably the most, uh, this is not 15 seconds, this would be the most disappointing outcome and yet the one I expect the most. Democrats are obsessed with extending olive branches to monsters. Um, and I say this as a lifetime, lifetime Democrat. Um, and my guess is because of the language Biden's already using of reconciliation and bridge building and all that fucking shit. Um, by the way, y'all, if you haven't noticed, I have a potty mouth and we are not a conservative podcast. Um, that there could be some offer of, of like an unspoken pardon on, on a lot of things in exchange for the rhetoric dialing down, like telling his folks like to calm down and, and a simple transfer of power. I hope I'm wrong. I think this is a crucial moment in American history of either we call a spade a spade um, and have a come to Jesus moment with white nationalism and what has happened, though the election numbers did not show uh, a real kind of condemnation of what's happened over the last four years. Um, I think it was really difficult for anyone who is a marginalized group to see those numbers. It was way, it, the closeness was just devastating, uh, but I don't know. I don't know, but it actually makes talking about the crown really interesting because a lot of the things that we're seeing happening in our world right now, uh, a lot of what we watched play out over the last like 18 months with uh, Harry Mountbatten and uh, Meghan Markle, uh, it's all, it, I mean, it's all there. It's all there for us to dig into. So I think we should, I think we should start talking about the crown. And we're going to do this actually not, um, we're not going to break down the episode scene by scene. We're going to break down the episode by five major kind of themes and takeaways and then discuss those five major themes and takeaways because there's so much, there's so much, John. Yeah, that's British history for you. That's British history. Uh, so also we are not historians. Uh, we're actually religious scholars, so we've got uh, plenty of history in us, but we're more here to kind of kiki around the tea, but let's do it. Let, let's break down episode one, which is titled, <laughs> I'm not mature, Gold Stick. <laughs> okay, Marcy, a lot of shit is going on. Yes. Um, so most of this episode takes place in 1979, um, which is when the troubles are upon us. Mm -hmm. And we'll give a little brief kind of real brief overview of the troubles. But honestly, if you want to get um, some 
some real good Irish history, just watch Dairy Girls on Netflix. Seriously, it's an incredible show. Every song has a Cranberries song. Every episode has a Cranberries song on it. So what couldn't you love about that? Honestly, one of my favorite shows. Um, it actually deals with like the 90s uh, and the, tr- the kind of end of the Troubles. But um, this is a plug for Dairy Girls is like one of the best shows on Netflix. So, so yeah, we open up with the Troubles. We've got this like stark imagery of like an Irish pundit talking about uh, – you know, his issues with British rule, his issues with, with the British royal family, the British uh, royal family. And then we've got the other image of the queen getting on a horse and, and going into like this perpetual mode of ritual and symbolism. Right. Um, And it's really stark because I think that that is telling us that there's this massive wall that the ritual and symbolism protects the British family from what's actually happening around them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the Troubles were kind of like an ethno-nationalist uh, conflict. Uh, some folks call it a war, some don't. I am not Irish or British, so I am not, I'm not versed well enough to know uh, what to call it uh, from an ethical perspective, um, but I know it began in the 60s. It ended with the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, though some would say it did not end there. It was mostly, uh, most of the violence and everything was in Northern Ireland, but uh, it's flew over to Republic of Ireland, England, and some of Europe at large. Um, very nationalistic um, at its core, but also there was like this ethnic kind of sectarian aspect to it, which was that unspoken kind of Catholic versus Protestant. Um, part of it, but not from a real, this is really hard for people to understand, not from a religious perspective. Catholic versus, versus Protestant from an identity perspective. Um, and I think that is is easier for Catholics to understand, um, particularly like, let's say like Hispanics who are Catholic, like Catholicism is part of our identity, even if we're not religious. Um, so, That's and, and sure. Protestantism as as a as an identity also has its own kind of um, signifiers, right? But but not a not a pope versus the the head of like the uh, Anglican Church or like that's not actually what it means when you when you look at the troubles. But um, thirty five hundred people died, and more than half of them were civilians, and so that's kind of that sets the scene for us politically, right? Yeah, so that would like be the a- first. Yeah, geopolitical like minefield of like really what we're dealing with. And these issues are even still alive today when you're talking about Brexit and other aspects when you're talking about Ireland, you know, and the, the border that they would have for the trades of goods and the ways in which other, um, you know, Ireland is trying to, you know, secede from the Royal Empire, you know, the British Empire, United Kingdom in many ways, because of how, you know, the countries are changing. I mean, you know, when you go all the way back historically, you see that, you know, the monarchy leaving the Catholic Church with Henry VIII, and, you know, the whole stark contrast between Protestantism and Catholicism that were happening then, that is 
a subset of what's trying to occur here. And this is also then, I think, mostly a huge class warfare is what we have as well. When you see the, how the episode sets it up from this really, you know, um, elegant, you know, scene with the queen versus, you know, a different world that she's supposed to rule over, but may or may not have immediate experiences with. So it is a classist. Right. And I would say that the subset of power that we're talking about there, when you look at Catholicism and Protestantism, is who holds power? Why do they hold it? And, and at what point can the people claim power for themselves, right? So that is, that is the, the connection from all the way from Henry VIII to the Troubles in Northern Ireland to um, Scotland trying to get its own um, independence. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's been a thread, but it's been a thread the entire time that imperialism has existed. So, um, so it'll be, it's interesting to watch it play out through the season, but also to have some perspective of what the Commonwealth looks like right now, what, um, what is expected to happen to the Commonwealth when uh, Queen Elizabeth dies. Uh, there's a lot of people who think that the Commonwealth exists almost as a grandfathered and gesture to the Queen, but it will not survive uh, the, whatever the next evolution of the monarchy is. So speaking of the next evolution of the monarchy, the second thing that, so obviously the first thing we wanted to focus on is this background of the troubles and arguments over power, over who gets power and whatnot. The second thing, which uh, the second kind of theme that we're going to talk about, um, and obviously we're not going in order of how things happen in this episode, Gold Stick, um, is we're going to talk about the fact that after four seasons of, of waiting, we have finally arrived at, I'm not saying that we weren't all excited about seasons one, two, three, and four. I have watched them multiple times. I am very it's like interested. a comforting show for me. Do you watch it ever when like you just yes, need to be yeah, comforted? Yeah. Well, I watch anything that has a corset and a discrepancy of power. This is true. This is true. This is true. Whenever I'm upset, I watch like The White Queen, The Spanish Princess, Marie Antoinette. I watch The Crown. I love anything that is lush and costumed um i will say this is the first season that is not comforting to me at all in the sense of like i'm not far removed from this season um so as a human this is the first season i've interacted with that i'm like um (laughs) this one pisses me off because i lived through parts of this story um i did not live through season season four right but my mom did and my love of princess diana um which is deeply entrenched in immigrant culture i don't know why my love of princess diana and uh the british royal family i've had my whole life so these are the first i'm using air quotes characters that like i'm not far removed from Though I will say to the the Daily Mail and Clarence House, Clarence House is um, the court that Charles and Camilla um, that represents them, uh, were very upset by the reaction to to the Crown this week and put out statements um, and and friends close to the Crown saying that they think it's irresponsible that Netflix doesn't do um, like a what would be like a pre-slide that says that this is not a documentary and that a lot of this is made up, um, to which I say, <laughs> no shit. 
Like I almost died laughing because one, that has never been an issue up until right now. Um, and two, we all know this is a dramatized history, right? Um, does, does, does there exist a certain lens through which this is being told? Sure. But, but no one is watching this thinking it's a documentary. However, what folks are latching onto is they haven't forgotten what happened. It is still obviously something that the public cares about. And, you know, I almost feel bad for Charles because they spent 30 years rehabbing their image only to have, um, it ruined <laughs> by TikTokers. Only to have it taken, taken, stepped on, ruined, and canceled by Gen Z. Found out what Charles did to Diana. And honestly, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm gonna, here for it. I'm going to pretend I'm not. I'm here for it. Um, you know, I will say that, and I want to give kudos because, you know, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corwin, who plays Diana, Josh plays Prince Charles, are, I mean, they're incredible in this show. The acting itself. Um, this season is impeccable. Um, a lot of people pan season three, um, including myself. There, a lot of stuff didn't happen in season three. It was Olivia Coleman's, you know, first entry into the Queen, um, you know, role. And as I heard from many of my friends who reviewed the show and who are deep in the entertainment industry, you know, they said season four is the best. They said, we know season three is a lot, um, but they said season four will make up for all of it. And it did. From a watching standpoint, we're back to like prime, uh, the crown viewing um, in many ways. And, you know, and if they could, they found a Diana that. Right, right. Well, look, here's, here's the thing. So I know a lot of people hated season three, and yet we could not have season four without what was built in season. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, yeah, in season three. Why do I think we're on season five? In season three, and I'll tell you this, and and this ties to again our theme of of um, Charles and Diana. There is nothing, nothing that I think justifies um, Peter Morgan's like kind of. Um, Peter Morgan is, oh, my work is trying to remind me to work and I'm like, no, thank you. Um, Peter Morgan is the creator of the show. Um, he also did The Queen. He's also- He also did The Queen. I, I would consider him a royal historian with a very specific lens, which is fuck the crown. And that is fine. He is. He actually has a lot of bona fides. Um, right. No, and, and in yeah. 2020, fuck the crown there's actually something wrong with you and i will actually get into that and i say this as someone who's obsessed with the british royal family who has followed them forever who checks go fuck yourself um hashtag go follow the fuck girls who follows royals like a crazy person um see there's nothing that makes it forgivable how much peter morgan has and ignored the interior lives of women on the show in general. I think this season in particular takes a bit of a turn right and acknowledges the interior life of the women. But the build out of Charles last season was so beautifully done, so nuanced, that season four hits you like a train wreck because of the amount of intentionality that went into building out who Charles was in his early 20s as a human, as a person, and who he was inside the cycle of an oppressive system, right? Um, 
that that is very difficult to do for a person that historically is deeply deeply hated and 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 hated because of because of some stuff that i this is where i'm going to be i'm going to try to be fair and objective charles is hated for being a victim of a victim of an oppressive system that he was born into he's he's honestly this is going to sound really difficult to swallow he's an actual victim of human rights violations who like it's just kind of in a in a terrible place as a human being and so when when i say human rights violation do you freak out and you're like that man is so privileged like no human rights violations um because i've i know i feel uncomfortable saying it but i want to say that anyone who is born into a system where they are bred to perpetuate a line they are not allowed to be themselves to to marry who they want to identify however they want to say what they want um, who are by the nature of the system pit against family and friends and have no no sense of security within their people that is not a, a just system the fact that he is drowning in money actually highlights the fact that money does not equal freedom right so i think it's really difficult sometimes to to wrap our heads around the duality of um prince charles being both a victim and an abuser but i think josh o'connor's done a really good job of showing us that transition of um from from a kid to an adult from someone who acknowledges that he is uh, a victim of a very unfair, oppressive system to how power can corrupt and, and how trauma can perpetuate trauma because he doesn't extend the same mercy and kindness that he extends to himself to Diana, right? So when we meet him in, in the season, he's just, being a hoe <laughs> well he's being something that's for sure i mean he's being a hoe he's sowing his oats which is what dicky lord mountbatten told him to do right yes and who, who's he who's he hoeing it around with you know he hoeing it around with lots of people i mean if you actually study the like tabloids of this time and go back and look like he had so many ladies in many ways um you know that it was hard to keep track of and so when they found like the right person, people paid attention. But mostly for this episode of what they really try um, to show you is that he was actually originally hoeing it up with uh, Diana's older sister, Sarah Spencer, if I'm not mistaken. Right, you know, he definitely dated Sarah Spencer. Um, when, we, when we see them interact, she's already engaged which is interesting. But this, this first scene is to introduce us to Charles and Diana. So Diana is actually 16 in this scene where she effectively meets Prince Charles, who would have been 28 at the time. So 16 and 28. Uh, let's drive home that she is a child, <laughs> which yes. Emma Corwin does a really, I mean, look, I, I think there are a few roles that could possibly be more difficult to embody than those of Diana Spencer. Um, and this this woman has embodied that 
that spirit of Diane way that's almost unnerving because it isn't a mimic it's but it's deeply nuanced homage to her so we get the scene where sarah is like i'll be right back and charles is waiting inside the spencer mansion which is also to remind us that diana was again bred exactly for this within her own aristocratic background um she lives in a like a manor she's like uh she's perfect to be the next queen but she walks in in this fictionalized scene where she's dressed as puck from midsummer night's dream were you ever in a midsummer night's dream i was not but it's an amazing play <laughs> i was in i was in a midsummer night's dream. i would be puck are you trying to say i'd be no puck? i think you'd be oberon <laughs> Oh, that's the nicest thing you've I would, ever said. I, you to would me. totally be Oberon. I was Helen. I I had my first kiss uh, during a during a Midsummer Night's Dream on stage. Tenth uh, grade, tenth grade, such a loser. Um, but yeah, no. Um, so she's dressed as Puck, just practicing some dance moves because she. This has always been really strange to me. She was obsessed with dance. She had some amazing teachers. She was actually good enough to be a professional dancer, but. Her upbringing, that wasn't really encouraged. And then she got really tall and apparently ballerinas can't be that tall, which I always thought was really weird. Um, so, so yeah, she's comes out in this like Romeo and Juliet Baz Luhrmann kind of like um, looking through like plants to like see Charles and like, um, and I think- Hiding behind them, like, like sheepishly, sheepishly, you know, she was- the- um, the innocence right. like, just protruded. We're supposed to see her as as just very innocent, virginal, um, which we know she was a virgin because they actually announced that before the wedding, which is so gross. And we know from Sarah later on in the episode, um, we know from Sarah that Diana was told to not come out, but that she was obsessed with the idea of meeting him. So, so that is their first kind of meet. Right. So, so it's a meat cute. It's a meat sure. cute for sure. It's endearing. It gives us an idea of Diana being kind of like a romantic at heart, right? Cause she was like, I'm going to meet the prince. Like I'm going to do it in costume and I'm going to be like, there is a flirtatiousness to it, which I think is important because I think the idea that like a child was handed over is also not accurate. She has agency. So yeah, she knew what she was doing there. I mean, you right. know, and we find that out, you know, and I think that, it does also really signify to me that um, Diana was actually smarter than I think a lot of people ever gave her credit for, or they gave her credit for it later on um, when they discovered her, how she used the power that the crown and her role and everything gave her. Mostly, you know, as we see later on in this season, and then obviously when they get divorced, um, and what she does to help the goodness of the world kind of push out, which is why we see her as the people's princess, right? Um, but, you know, as you laid into it, it's the understanding of the ways in which, you know, she's she's talked about from her sister's standpoint, oh, you know, she's been talking about you. You know, that's kind of like this little girl, like, oh, I can't wait to meet your boyfriend. You know, all these types of ways in which, you know, they're trying to be cute, but actually... Diana's agency does come out in this episode because I love the line. She's like, she didn't have to go through that hall to get to where she was going. She purposely went through the hall because she knew that Charles was there. Right. 
Right. So I, I'm glad that they gave her that agency. I do think the cleaning lady conundrum is really funny because yeah. it shows us that like she's living a life where she literally has no purpose. Here's this girl who has a bajillion million dollars. She has titles and everything. And she's so bored. That, and she, the, historically, they say she likes helping so much that she's just like cleaning her sister's apartment. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy. And then later in the episode, um, after a bunch of stuff happens, we see her in her apartment in London with a bunch of girls, super young, listening to 80s music, get the phone call of her life, which is Charles wants to meet her, right? And he does. And this episode actually ends with him driving up to, um, to the estate uh, to see her. So very exciting. Yeah. And, and then we get to the moment we've all been waiting for. So our third theme is, or character, is Margaret Thatcher, played by Gillian Anderson. Our queen. Uh, My queen. She's here. She's here. Um, very excited. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, debate over whether or not this performance is a good performance or not. Um, again, I didn't live through the Thatcher years, um, and the only Thatcher I really knew was Meryl Streep. Exactly. Um, I just watched that again today. Oh, we're all, we're literally all detoxing off of every documentary, every film we can find, uh, because none of us know when we're, we're going to get the next season, which is really sad. We know it's definitely confirmed the actors who have agreed for it are super exciting. Elizabeth DeBecky is going to play Princess Diana, which is, um, which is actually the casting I've had for five years. So I'm really excited. But, um, but yes, uh, we knew Gillian Anderson was going to be Margaret Thatcher. She is uh, she is Peter Morgan's wife, actually. Not that I think nepotism played any part in this, but uh, but knowing that she was working with with her husband, knowing that this is the role that she, I guess, held. I think she probably could have had any role she wanted. Um, was exciting. Uh, I'm of the camp that this performance is camp, and mildly obnoxious as a historical portrayal but as a i'm watching it on screen i'm living for it everything about it is too much the hair is too much the voice is too much your majesty the um the curtsy is the most hilarious and outrageous thing i've ever seen um and you know what i'm fine again uh contrary to Clarence House and Kensington Palace and Buckingham Palace's um, concern. I'm not concerned with this being a documentary. So how do you I, feel about the performance? I Look, I know we have to hate Margaret Thatcher. I'm not saying I'm like in love with Margaret Thatcher. I'm in love with the campy nature that we're really seeing here. I mean, that's exactly, this is exactly the type of kiki we're here for that I cannot get enough TikTok videos of um, because of the ways in which like people are just mocking and and imitating this in a in a really awesome way look margaret thatcher was the devil <laughs> so um, we can get that out of we can get that out of here <laughs> right we can, we can confidently say that you know her and reagan being alive and in power at the same time is quite terrifying um, it's it's, a, it's really funny right that you've got that pair and then we had boris johnson and donald trump like that was the scariest conservative period. This is the dumbest conservative period. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite terrifying, but like, let's so, be real. Jillian Ann, I thought she did great. 
I loved her performance. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, everyone's really split on it. No one, I don't think, I don't think anyone doesn't enjoy watching it. It's just whether or not, unlike Emma Corwin, who I thought fully embodied this character in a way that felt so close it hurt, Margaret Thatcher feels cartoonish in solidarity. And, and those walk. are two very different ap- approaches and I respect them both. Her Do you mind walk. just breaking down Thatcherism for me really quick? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so uh, as we all know, Margaret Thatcher was the head of the conservative party in the United Kingdom. Um, and she is the first female prime minister that was ever elected um, to represent all the prime ministers that we've seen come through on the show. Um, but she um, had a very specific ideology um, that we uh, developed um, and understand um, and what historians have now called Thatcherism. So Thatcherism um, specifically is a conservative ideology emphasizing free markets, restrained government spending and tax cuts, and British aka white nationalism. Um, and, and specifically when you're looking at the ways in which this is traditional to stuff that we would be talking about, it's, it's very in line with very conservative republicanism that we would have here in the United States. They don't want the government telling you what to do. They want you to live your own life, free markets, tax it's, cuts it's very, for the rich. Yes. It's very bootstrappy. It is very um, implicitly anti the poor it, it it's def, it was anti uh, Commonwealth, um, anti folks of color, um, it, yeah, just austerity and and um, bootstrappy at its core. Do you know what it also is? What the inspiration for Lord Voldemort and Dolores Umbridge. Every time Gillian Anderson speaks, all I hear is that's all I hear. That's all I hear, and yet. Theologically, it's Dolores Umbridge. Uh, And it's really interesting knowing that J.K. Rowling, the turf of all turfs, um, grew up during this time. And and that is kind of her snapshot for evil. Um, (laughs) You will eventually turn into the people that you hate. Um, But I've made fun of the voice a lot. And yet I found out that historically it's been documented that she actually lowered her voice, mm-hmm. the register performatively to be taken more seriously amongst the men that she was working with. So um, though I think it is a tad bit too far and it actually hurts to listen to um, as someone who grew up in the Valley and has deep vocal fry um, I actually felt a sense of like sadness reading that because there are a lot of times that I have to change the uh, way that I sound to be taken more seriously. Um, And I know that I have friends who grew up in the deep South who have been told so many times that the Southern accent is a kind of just a stopper for like being taken seriously for jobs. And so I understand that. I understand it. So the queen's excited about Margaret Thatcher. Um, yes, she is. High five as to we white, all know. High five to white feminism that just assumes a woman is a feminist. Yeah, and um, as we all know, and you and I have said on this show, um, <laughs> just because just you're, a woman, you're a woman doesn't make you a feminist. feminist. AKA Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> Fuck Amy Coney. I, I, well, I can't Amy even touch Coney it. Barrett. I can't. Can't I can't touch even it. touch it. Can't touch it. We're uh, moving on. We're moving on. Moving on. So yeah, for a hot minute, 
these two internalized misogynists of women uh, have some kinship with each other. Um, Prince Philip, played by the always incredible Tobias Menzies, uh, actually tells the queen that it's ridiculous that there's a female prime minister, which um, he's like staring at his wife who's queen. So, okay, Philip. <laughs> you want to know what? Like, I actually, during this whole time, because, you know, the queen has always had to, and, I, and we'll get to this episode when her and Thatcher really, I think, and spoiler alert, you know, when they square off, but then ultimately when Thatcher loses her reelection bid and, you know, we'll, we'll discuss all spoiler that. Spoiler alert. But we'll talk about when all did that, that happen? We'll see maybe episode eight um, or nine. I can't remember, but spoiler alerting because you ultimately see the queen who's had to deal with um, men in this role that she was thrusted into at a very young age, 25, right. I believe. And then understanding where if she could have um, had someone like herself, would it have been a little bit different? I mean, the episodes where she really discovers and looks at her identity as a mother, as a woman are interesting. And I think having a female prime minister was something um, that really excited her. And you really see her sheer um, disappointment in essence, um, or, maybe complexity, whereas the queen tries to think of Margaret Thatcher in one way, but then she really gets an awakening when... Um, when she realizes Margaret Thatcher's just one of the guys. Yeah, um, and if, the if irony not even is, more. If not right, even more. right, because she has more to prove. The irony is the queen not recognizing that in herself, yes. right? Um, that they actually have that in common. Uh, one, of the, one of the comments that catches the queen off guard is uh, when Thatcher on the show's because um, the queen apparently loves to predict who's going to be on cabinets and she does make kind of like a side comment of like will there be women in the cabinet and Thatcher was like no women are too emotional and not suited for office and it's just kind of like it, it was Thatcher or Philip one of the two and I think the queen is just no really it's Thatcher she goes there is it Thatcher yeah, it's the it's it's that like that she inhabits the crown but she's also a woman the woman part of her seems really shocked but the crown part of her has to hold that kind of like face together um but i will say that her predicting cabinets and what we find out is that she predicted most of thatcher's cabinet correctly is that she's not the child that she was with churchill anymore mm-hmm. right um things to know about thatcher is that she was a royalist like deeply respected the idea of monarchy and she was a traditionalist. We know this also because she goes home from meeting with the queen as prime minister to iron her husband's shirts. And to women who are like, um, ironing your husband's shirt can be a hundred percent feminist. Yes. Yes, it can. There's nothing wrong with housework. It's, it's, the show is very heavy handed at symbolism. There's a reason we go straight from her being prime minister to her being a wife And that is because Peter Morgan historically has looked at Thatcher as someone who felt like she should and was able to inhabit both spaces, but resented other women who did. Um, So very interesting to see that relationship play out. We'll see it play out throughout the entire season. Our fourth and penultimate theme person that we were going to talk about in this episode is Uncle Dickie. Uncle Dickie. Lord Mountbatten. Played no, you have by to the say ever- it. you have to say it Lord Mountbatten Lord Mountbatten uh, your majesty your majesty <laughs> I cannot curtsy that low I will say I did try it 
And girl, <laughs> got those knees. My favorite thing before it we hurts. go on to Dickie is um, I love Margaret Thatcher's walk. Like, it's like she gets up and then she goes, boop, like she darts away, right? Oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hunch. She has like that little hunch that she, you know, she's tiny. And it's she like, that nothing, but, nothing about it comes naturally. And I think so that funny. that is, that is done by Peter Morgan on purpose to remind us that, while both women desperately are seeking the respect that the power they hold gives them, uh, Elizabeth was bred into it. She she knows it intrinsically. Every part of it is difficult for Mar- for Margaret Thatcher, from the curtsy to the talking to the itty pity game, which we'll get to in the next episode. Nothing's natural. So so moving on to Uncle Dickie, Charles Dance, who played uh, Tyrion, not Tyrion. Tywin Lannister, who died on the toilet in Game of Thrones. I love him with the fire of a thousand suns, and I love him as as Mountbatten. So he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just he dies. Dies really quick. He did. He did. did. Uh, Jk. Like he got blown up. It. (laughs) We'll talk it through. Um, But this episode starts off with like the whole family powwowing around a bougie little um, lunch, talking about dating life the same way that in other seasons they have talked about their horses and the studying of their horses so i think that that is done completely on purpose to remind us that there is a dehumanization in the way in which everyone is approaching charles and in the way that they will approach diana and the way that they will approach them as a couple they it is so dehumanizing for both of them um the conversation that happens is really interesting because philip points out after Anne really um kind of uh sarcastically Anne, played by aaron daughtry who i'm obsessed with and in love with um says he's still with you know that parker bowles woman but um but says he's been seeing sarah spencer um peter Peter Philip reminds Dickie that that's your fault. You encouraged it. You said he could have mistresses. You said to sow his oats, right? So you can see there's a tension between uh, Lord Mountbatten and Prince Philip um, that is mounting. And and it's what I think it is, is actually, again, a conversation about power and who has gotten to to shape Charles. And I think there's resentment, which we get to actually um in 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 this episode of who got to be kingmaker with charles um and it was it was not philip so definitely who was his father right as we saw right who was his father and then who got to play king because philip could never be king but he could have been the kingmaker and i don't think he ended up being that for folks who don't know that term it goes back all the way to the war of the roses um the folks who play chess behind the scenes win uh there's which is why the different courts of saint james and everything matter there's a lot of folks playing chess behind the scenes um playing for power so so let's just let's just kill off Mountbatten. so so he dies on the boat and this is uh, important for the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of, of right. setting the scene here. So we truly understand that um, there are really um, ten. Yeah, I'm not minimizing his death. It's yeah. just because it is. Even the show was, was like, we don't have time to go into what a lost Mountbatten was for the family, um, but also like 
not a great person, y'all. So uh, I'm also not going to mourn the loss of Mountbatten. Interesting character historically, um, but highly believed in imperialism, uh, believed in eugenics, uh, was the last like person to over the British Empire in India. Just not a great person. Um, but the IRA claimed the bombing of his boat that killed him and others. Um, but we do get a beautiful cinema, cinematic decision of filming everyone doing really calm things. Charles is fishing at the River Hafsa, the Queen is riding, Philip is hunting, and then we get this boat that just blows up. And that similar to the opening shot too, I will say. Right. It was a underwater versus above. I, I kept waiting. When, when are we going to see it? Like I was actually. Yeah, it was, it was a beautifully shot scene. And I think similar to the beginning, it's meant to show us that the family is so protected from what's actually happening in the real world. They're literally out there in the Highlands um, doing nothing while the troubles and the IRA are actively happening, right? And, and, and Mountbatten was collateral damage in the sense of they were still pretty much untouched by any of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really interesting. But Mountbatten matters to Peter Morgan as a catalyst for the Charles-Diana relationship, right? Um, and for the Charles versus Philip kind of fallout. Um, so before Mountbatten dies, he's on the phone with Charles and he's telling him like, I wanna see you, like I'm not happy about this Camilla shit. And, um, and Charles is kind of like, well, I'm gonna be in London, but I don't want, I'm, I'm gonna be seeing Camilla. And Dickie's like, why, like, why are you doing this? And it's a really good moment because Charles was like, why, again, all of this is fictionalized, but like, how dare you lecture me when like Mountbatten was notoriously famous for having had an open marriage. His wife, Edwina, was considered a man eater. So of the two of them, the one who was always cheating was actually Mountbatten's wife. And um, Mountbatten was actually famous for deciding to go with the flow and just befriend her her lovers and uh, what, what is the, is, is it mistress and mister? What is the term, John? I don't know, but get yours. Is it mister or misters? <laughs> yeah, he's like famous for being like, if you can't beat him, join him. Not like sexually, but like he would just become friends with whoever his wife's. Um, I mean, look, mist- that's a lot of people that do that work. That's a lot of work. I think also the idea that Philip thought he had any kind of moral place to stand on was also kind of funny since he notoriously had mistresses as well. Um, but, but there's a very sad moment right before this conversation hangs up where Charles begs Mountbatten to invite him and Camilla over so that he can see how much they love each other. And this should remind us of season one, right? And his great uncle begging begging pretty much for someone to just look at him and Wallace and recognize that they were in love, right? Exactly. Um, so before he gets on the boat, there's this fictionalized letter that Mountbatten writes to, to Charles. Um, were you, this letter I, doesn't exist. This letter does not exist, but the sentiment behind it does. Um, watching watching uh, Josh O'Connor uh, 
process the death was, I think, really difficult because they actually kind of the noise, but you just see him screaming. Um, just such a such a such a loss, and we know from historians that the loss of Mountbatten really, really hurt Charles, right? And you um, see that but type I, of emotion from the right, right. Well, the British stiff upper lip, right? Um, so this fictional letter, though, I think is important to drive home what messages were sent to Charles at this time in his life, right? It was that he wasn't working hard enough to be the future king, so to embody that role. Um, that choosing his wife was a major part of the work he was supposed to be doing. Um, again, the letter reminds him about his great uncle ruining the family with a married woman. So it's a takedown of Camilla, how he could build his destiny with, and this hurts reading, like, like a sweet, well-tempered girl with no past who will follow all the rules. Right. So what, what a dehumanizing statement about who Charles is supposed to end up with. Right. Exactly. Just gross. Just gross. Um, but uh, Mountbatten also says that, like, it's his duty to find someone that the people will love as a princess and then his queen, that that's his duty. The irony is Mountbatten not knowing Charles well enough to know that that is exactly what would make him hate is if the people loved someone over him, if they showed care over him. And that's, that's childhood trauma, that's generational trauma, but um, the foreshadowing there of the one thing Mountbatten says he needs to find, which is someone that the people will love, becomes the one thing that just Charles can't get over. Yeah, I mean, the, it's a, it, Peter Morgan is so heavy-handed. There's no need to even interpret anything in this show, right? Um, so, so yeah. And also remember, in the last season, um, Charles getting close with his uncle, who was the one that abdicated, and actually visiting him, and the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he saw him. himself in him. He so and the same thing being said there, you know, Charles, I mean, it's almost like he sets himself up to understand the life that he wants with Camilla, but it can't occur. Right. And Charles then visiting his uncle um, and ultimately then the uncle then saying to the queen or however it was in that narrative is he needs to find a good woman. And it's right. understanding that. And I think for his uncle, that would have been Camilla. Right. Because he chose, um, whatever the woman's name was that he abdicated for i just forgot wallace 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 simpson right and so we she's all my see, sartorial hero her fashion yeah. style is you legendary know, we all see that that dichotomy right whereas his uncle yeah. wallace aka camilla and i think charles sees that pull whereas the establishment his mother his uncle are saying you need to choose diana but he can right. never get over that right and I mean, like, Diana becomes the one that's chosen, but it, it, it just couldn't be Camilla. Never. It just couldn't, it couldn't be Camilla. So I think that the final thing with Dickie that I think is important to kind of go into is there's a scene um, that Philip tells Charles that Dickie left, like, 500 pages on how to bury him like a fucking king. And that for some reason, they've, like, Mountbatten had asked for Charles to read um, the reading at the funeral, and you can see that Prince Philip is furious about it. Um, and this goes back to Dickius Kingmaker in seasons one and two. Um, you know, Philip was his nephew. He was pushing him towards Elizabeth. He was building an empire. He's the one who pushed 
for the, the Mountbatten name to end up with everyone but those in line for the crown, which is why him, I think, is not a Mountbatten, but um, but Prince Harry is. But it established his power, right? So so Philip, and I might be wrong on that, but I I distinctly I know that there the Mountbatten name was established because of Dicky, um, and his pressure of through Philip to the queen that his descendants needed to carry his name. Um, but you see Philip be hurt with the fact that as soon as someone was there who would have more power than Prince Philip, his attentions turned to him, right? Um, but then when, <laughs> when Charles says that they both lost a father figure, Philip loses his shit. Yeah. That scene should win him an award because he just kept repeating, you have a father, you have a father. And like, I think it's the first time it's sunk in Philip that for Charles, he doesn't, he just doesn't. Um, and then uh, we'll in a second before we close out. Um, but to close this off with Dickie, Dickie's death leads to Diana running into Charles in the show and offering her condolences and he doesn't remember her because she was dressed as Puck and she was 16. Um, but she offers such sincere condolences with so much empathy, which is honestly what the world knows her for, that he kind of takes a second look at her and is like, hmm, hmm, yeah. hmm. hmm. The, that would change the world. Hmm. I know. Uh, Calls Sarah up and says, I want to date her. And I've thought a lot about what Diana offered versus Camilla, and I don't like putting them against each other because I don't actually think, um, I don't think it was a Camilla versus Diana thing. I think it was a Charles is Charles thing, but Camilla but treated- Camilla versus Diana is too easy. Of it's too easy. It's too easy. But I do think that Diana in that moment offering that over the top sympathy, empathy, kindness, hit that nerve, that spot, of hurt that he's had his whole life, of not feeling seen, of not feeling loved tangibly. Whereas when I think of what Camilla offers him, Camilla is the only person who doesn't treat him like a king, just treats him like a person, like treats him like an equal, does not really show deference to his kingship. And I think that is a different offering, right? So so I do think the the idea that it's one versus the other, no, they hit different spots. They different. They hit different spots. Um, and then the last thing to discuss is Balmoral, actually, I think, because uh, it's almost its own character and it lives very interestingly in this entire season. Um, but not too much in this episode, but we do find out that Princess Anne's marriage is falling apart. Um, I'm kind of pissed that we're focusing on that when the most interesting storyline will always be the one they never gave us which is that she literally was carjacked and like and fought back and and like told them to fuck off and like how do you not put that on screen with Aaron Daughtry as Anne she is I will say and I know we've talked about this offline I will say Princess Anne is probably my favorite character in this season <laughs> I really really like her I I really like her on the show um We'll get into this later. I don't think there are good people in the British royal family I mean, by I say like by default. Yeah. But if you ask me to pick one, it's probably her. I just love how um, I'm. This is a total spoiler alert, but I mean, it comes down to it. But like when the queen 
like in the later later episodes is like goes to princess anne and it's like okay tell me and she just simply puts it up like boy meets girl she's the friend you want she's the friend who just says it she says exactly what she's saying um (laughs) i will say that i think the reason we get this scene at balmoral where philip comes up to her and is like yo like i've heard that the marriage is suffering and i've heard that that's making you question your equestrian life and like please know we're so proud to have an olympian in the family um it's supposed to different his affection for Anne is but when I thought about it a lot um is the fact that like I'm not necessarily sure that the crown as as an entity even allows parents to love their child because there seems to be a lot of love for Anne Edward and Andrew and I think part of it is that they're not the ones who bear the burden of the crown but similar to something that Charles said in the last season I mean, his life depends on his mother dying. His mother knows that her son's life depends on her dying. I think it just creates a, a very strange relationship. And I think for Philip, the resentment that that his son will always be more powerful than him, will be king and he will not, is a barrier that he doesn't have with his other children. Um, and you see, like, you see the queen and Philip just freak out when Anne does well at this equestrian um competition and it's just such a stark contrast to the coldness with which charles has lived his life and which within he's about to live out the most traumatic and horrible part of his life right like Anne gets a lot of support with this marriage issues and with everything um and i think it's just such a a, a like hey just just a reminder that they have the capacity to love better it's just never ever off ever and that's the end of this episode yeah i mean this, it sets up a lot for what's coming it when i saw this episode i was like okay we're in for a season like my friends were right right like, it definitely it definitely like redefined what last season was in many ways for me and really got me back to like season one, two of like, oh, okay. Like in season one, we know Prince Philip uh, definitely has a wandering eye. And so we're getting back to that like over dramatics of everything in the ways in which, you know, we have that that narrative because, you know, what is the king and queen's relationship outside of Prince Philip's, you know, uh, scandalous affairs, as we shall say them, allegedly. I mean, we who don't doesn't want to be call seen. for a ballerina every once in a while? <laughs> uh, that, we will get there, but that line, that <laughs> yeah. line the there's queen so says much, back to so him, much to, there's so much to get to. It's um, iconic. I will say yeah. it's the level of camp with Thatcher and with the queen, um, but Olivia Coleman just shows why she won an Oscar. I mean, truly, I mean, it, Helen Bonham Carter, we don't get enough of her. And, you know, I think at all in this season, we get her a little bit in the, in the first episode, but you know, this. Every performance is stunning in, in is. this season. Every performance is nuanced. Um, for a show that I actually think the material could be better put together the performances are just stunning uh so we'll discuss episode two next week but i'm i'm excited to be talking the crown um i'm always excited to talk queens with my queen marcy thanks john and to the gen zers who have now joined the eternal flame of hating charles and camilla our mother 
so proud of you because while some of us have forgotten, our moms never have. So we'll see. Welcome to the resistance, Gen Z. (laughs) Talk to you next week. Bye.